Let's, let's read the text. Psalm chapter 17. A prayer of David. He says, or he prays rather, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from your presence. Let your eyes look on the things that are upright. You have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and have found nothing that is nothing evil. I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress concerning the works of men. By the word of your lips, I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. Uphold my steps in your paths that my footsteps may not slip. I have called upon you for you will hear me, O God. Incline your ear to me and hear my speech. Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand, O you who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings from the wicked who oppress me, from my deadly enemies who surround me. They have closed up their fat hearts. With their mouths they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They have set their eyes crouching down to the earth as a lion is eager to tear its, his prey and like a young lion lurking in secret places. Arise, O Lord, confront him, cast him down, deliver my life from the wicked with your sword, with your hand from men, O Lord, from men of the world who have their portion in this life and whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their possessions for their babes. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for your word. And, and Lord, I really love this psalm just by the fact that, that David has passively provoked unjustified persecution. And Lord, he has been tested by you. He's, he's upright in this matter, and yet he's suffering. And so, Lord, I pray that you would teach us and encourage us in this to be like David, especially as the culture is just caving in upon the church. And more than ever, issues of, of biblical morality are being challenged, and those who hold them are being maligned and persecuted. Lord, encourage us with this text. Help us to stand firm. And Lord, so we do pray in regard to everything that's happening at the Supreme Court. Lord, I pray that not only would, would you help them along to vote in favor of life, but the justices, Lord, would make good, sound arguments for the sanctity of life. And that the people of America could hear that and understand it. There's good reasons to show mercy to those in the womb. Lord, I also, uh, of course, we want to lift up those in our church family who have caught COVID. Ask, Lord, that you would grant them mercy, Lord, that you would help them to recover quickly, and that you just bring us back together soon, Lord. Watch after them, keep the rest of their families safe, and um, Lord, we do pray for, for herd immunity with all of this. Keep us strong. And Lord, we don't want to forget um, our brother, Bill Lahan, and Lord, in his loss, pray that, Lord, that he, by your grace, just find fellowship with you so that you might minister to him in all of this. Bless him, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, be seated, those of you here. Okay, 
Well, Psalm 17, a number of interesting observations to make in the psalm. Uh, I guess that I want to point out an attempt to discern what is happening, even though uh, it's really impossible to gain uh, real historical background from it. Um, It's certainly a prayer of David. It says that in the beginning. It says that in the text itself. And as as I read, as you can as you hear it, David is pleading with the Lord. He's pleading with God. Uh, I'm not sure if you can read that. It's pretty small, but he's pleading with God to. He starts out by saying to hear his just cause, this cause of righteousness. He says to attend his cry, to hear his prayer, to vindicate his cause, to look at his situation. That's all in verse one through two, and then he petitions God also in, as you can see there, verse 5, 17, and 13, um, to uphold his steps. I want to talk about that specifically more later. Also to guard his life, and then in that process to confront his enemies, and by the sword of the Lord to cast his enemies down. Now, in verse 5, I think is the best request of all. He says this, he says, uphold my steps, in your path, that my footsteps may not slip. Uphold my steps in your path, that my footsteps may not slip. Now, David, like any man, can establish his own footsteps. But in this particular instance, David did not set his own path and then, uh, and then call it God's. Uh, he didn't begin to walk in a certain direction, uh, in certain behavior, a certain course of action, and then ask God to bless it. He was walking on the Lord's path. He was obeying God's word. He was obeying God's will, and he was suffering for it. But he said, Lord, help me to maintain this path that is yours, even though it's, it's hurting me. And so as David said in verse one, he said, this is a just cause. It's just cause because this is God's path. It's, it's his will. It's a righteous endeavor. Endeavor, which makes David's prayer a righteous prayer. He's not being disobedient. He's not being presumptuous. In fact, in this prayer, David demonstrates that he's been morally upright. He says, God has tested me. Uh, God has visited me. God has tried me. The, the, the idea there is God has proven me. Okay? David goes on to say that in this situation... He says, I didn't transgress in word, and I didn't transgress in deed, and that God was his witness approving of him uh, as he had tested him. Now, we would, like any man like us, uh, there are other instances where David could not say that, Uh, but in this particular instance, he could say that, and he says, God has has been the witness of all of it. And in verse 3, it says that uh, this was God's evaluation. He looked and he found nothing. That is, God sought some, he sought in me, he looked in me, uh, seeing if there, like he has prayed elsewhere, see if there's any wicked way in me. But in this context, God found nothing. David was above reproach. He had not provoked the wicked by violating God's word or his will. But in spite of that, or even uh, probably because of it, uh, David and his companions are being hunted by the wicked for destruction. I say David and his companions because the text says in verse 11, uh, it says, our steps 
so he's, he's using the plurality there. So people are with him. People are being uh, persecuted with him. And real quick, look at how David describes all of this. In verse 9 through 12, he says they've closed up their fat hearts. Now that, of course, can be translated in different ways. Um, he says they boast or speak proudly. They surround us. They set their gaze upon us and ready themselves like a crouching lion. So first of all, there's the, they've closed up their fat hearts. Um, that's probably as literal as you can get in the original language. But the idea is that it means that by closing their heart, um, they have no pity. They, they have no mercy. There's no compassion in them. Uh, they're completely uncaring. This is a, a, these are bloodthirsty people. And then their boasting has to do with the schemes, their plans in regard to what they're going to do to David and those who are with him. And then he begins to compare them to uh, lions, uh, perhaps a pride of lion that's lions that are on the hunt. And he says, like, and like lions, uh, all they can think about is killing and consuming, and David is the prey. Um, and then you come to the, the language in verse 11 and 12, and it's, it speaks of imminence. Uh, these lions have set their gaze on their prey, and now they're, they're crouching, and their, their muscles are tense. They're ready to pounce, and um, they are filled. They're consumed by uh, their lust for blood. So a lion and, and the way that it, it attacks. Um, I, David describes this as if he's witnessed it. And he probably has before as a shepherd boy watched lions creep up on their prey, set their focus on them, crouch, and then actually pounce on their prey. And a very vivid kind of portrayal of these people. David says they're like those lions. And so David, because this is imminent, because of the, the way that they're, they've readied themselves to attack, David is in a state of emergency. And so what he does is he cries out for the Lord in verse 13. And he's, he says, Lord, I want you to confront my enemies head on. I want you to slay them with the sword and cast them to the ground. Now, I'm not sure that that was always in David's nature. Uh, David was a man of the sword. Uh, David was all about self-defense. David was all about uh, exterminating the enemy. But here... For whatever reason, it, he's trying his best to really hand this over to the Lord. And uh, he says, Lord, you handle this for me. And then he, just, he, he talks more about the wicked here, which I think adds to the justification for God dealing with them. Verse 14, he, he says that these people are of the world and their cares are confined to the world. But then even in the world, he says... They enjoy God's blessing, and then they pass on to their children the things of the world. And I think that this language here is, is being held in contrast to the way that God has evaluated David. Uh, they're the people of the world. David is the, the godly man. Maybe we could say the heavenly man here. But these people, they live in the world, but there's no, there's no recognition uh, of the God who created the world. They, they enjoy the gifts of God, but they do not recognize the God who gives. Uh, they receive children from the Lord, 
but they do, they do not give the children back to the Lord. It's, uh, these people are completely secular. Uh, they're, they're consuming, they're enjoying God's common grace while rejecting the God of grace and pursue, persecuting the people of God. And then on the other hand, the godly man, he enjoys these things as well. But like David, he says, he sees God's face in righteousness, or some translations say because of righteousness, and are satisfied when they see God. The point seems to be that it is the righteous that will see God, and when they do see God, they're going to experience total satisfaction. He's the one that satisfies them. The earthly man only has the earth and the things in it to satisfy him. He has nothing beyond it to look forward to. And because he gives no thought to God, he is ungodly and he does ungodly things. But the godly man, everything is, is, is focused upon the Lord, his satisfaction in the eternal God, who he understands is the giver of all things. And then the godly man is living his life in preparation for his encounter uh, with God by living righteously, uh, especially in the face of persecution and, and suffering. It just came to mind, I can't remember which uh, early father it was, um, but he was essentially asked, you know, what is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? And by one of the, 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 his fellow monks in a monastery. And he said, the, the, the purpose for life is to prepare oneself for judgment. He, he, all of life is going to converge at the throne of God. And he said, so all of life should be in preparation for that day. And, uh, and, I, and I agree. Uh, we, uh, all of us are going to give an account to God. And uh, the way that we've lived in this life, Jesus says we're going to be judged, uh, whether uh, by the good we've done, by the evil we've done, and we should be preparing. And uh, I think that that's what David is saying here. The people of the world, uh, this is it for them, they think. And so they make no preparations. But for the godly man, he lives in anticipation of standing before the Lord and giving an account for his life. And I believe that we, of course, look forward to that day and then being satisfied by the Lord. Okay, so let's, I want to take a step back and then uh, look at the big picture of this psalm. The, the more you look at the psalm, the more obvious it becomes that David, by no fault of his own, uh, has provoked an unjustified attack. As we said, David says, I've obeyed the, the word of the Lord. I've done the right thing. He says, I haven't transgressed in my words. Uh, I haven't transgressed in my deeds. And he says, God has confirmed all of this, and yet I'm being assaulted. Okay, so this is, it's an unjustified attack on David. Now, as we said at the beginning, it's, it's really impossible to know the historical context. But there are a number of times in David's life where he passively provoked an unjustified attack on his character, uh, attack on his life, as, as he was doing exactly what God had called him to do. Uh, two examples immediately come to mind. Uh, David's brother, Eliab, he attacked David's character just before David's battle with Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, 28 through 29, when David was just obeying his father's will. He had come to the battle uh, so that he could deliver the food and things to his brothers to be a blessing to them. 
and his brother insults him and attacks his character just for doing what his father commanded him to do. Saul then uh, sought David's life shortly after the battle with Goliath. David got it before and he got it after. That's 1 Samuel 18, 7 through 12. Even though David just did what God called him to do. And in the process, he saved Israel. He even perhaps saved uh, Saul's life. And Saul tried to kill David while David was serving him in his affliction. So David did the right thing, the God-ordained thing, but he provoked unjustified attacks. And the scriptures actually call this whole thing, these kind of scenarios, a good thing rather than a bad thing. Uh, Peter addresses all of these kinds of scenarios, and he says it's the, actually the opposite of all of this that is a bad thing. He says it this way. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Now, the one that stands out, uh, at least to me, is um, the busybody who meddles in the affairs of others. This is a nosy person who constantly oversteps their, their business and gets involved in yours. It's, they, 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 they invite themselves in and they're totally unwelcome. Uh, I wonder if Peter had somebody in mind. Uh, he, perhaps like when he went to Jesus and asked, how many times do I forgive my brother? And he says, seven times. And, and, and I wonder if Jesus was thinking, well, now uh, what, did, what did Andrew do? But the point here that uh, Peter actually makes is if you commit any of these things, uh, you deserve some kind of discipline, some kind of punishment, some kind of negative reaction. If you commit any of the first three on the list, you should probably be fined or go to jail. But if you're a busybody and get punched in the face, you should just call it even because I think you had it coming. Uh, You provoked a response that you deserved. This is a bad thing, uh, being a Christian who's ungodly, who provokes a negative response. But that's not what we see with David. I think David actually sets a great example of suffering for righteousness' sake. And Peter could have shared story after story from David's life. He has much to say about suffering for things similar to David's experience. He says, Beloved, do not think it strange... Uh, Other translations say, do not be surprised concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. Uh, These things have come upon you. It's it's ordained. Uh, We've been appointed to suffering, the scriptures tell us, um, when we stand for righteousness especially. But Peter says, look, don't think that it's strange. Don't don't be surprised by this. this. This is ordained. This is something that happens so you can be tested, so that your character can be proven. He says, it's not strange, it's quite normal. He goes on, he says, uh, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So we should be joyful in the fact that being persecuted for righteousness, we're actually sharing in the sufferings of Christ. When we read Philippians chapter 3, Uh, Paul actually looked forward to suffering as Christ did. Uh, When the apostles were beaten by the Sanhedrin, uh, they were excited because they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. 
So he's, Peter's here saying you should rejoice. He's, he's not uh, speaking as someone that uh, telling people to, to do what he hasn't done. He's been through suffering he's, and he's rejoiced. And he says, do this so that when Christ comes, you will rejoice all the more. He has more to say. He says, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, or oh, or, oh how happy you are because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, that is the world, he, God, is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. So God is using the testing not only to prove your character, but he's using it to be glorified through you. And he says, you're blessed, you should be happy. You should be happy. He says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in this matter. It's not you that should be ashamed. It's the ungodly. So he says, glorify God. There's a lot more from Peter. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. He moves on to verse 15. He says, instead, he says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Well, don't remove this from the context that it's in. Peter is talking about those who are currently suffering persecution. And he says, in that context, he says, you should be ready and you should be offering answers. So apparently he believes that in the context of persecution, that people are going to be curious about you why you would endure it the way that you are, especially if you're doing it in the godly way. And he says, for that reason, you should just be ready. You shouldn't wallow in self-pity, but you should use it as an opportunity to share your hope with others. He says, in the midst of this, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. So he says we should be using the opportunity to display Christian integrity, mercy, faith, and patience. And as we do that under persecution, he's saying perhaps someone will notice that and they will be ashamed. They'll be ashamed that you would act, that you would behave toward them in godliness, even though they've been to you just terrible. Peter says, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It's good. Don't do evil. Earlier he said, don't be caught as a thief or a murderer or a meddler. Okay. And I think that the challenge is, is that when we fall into persecution, whatever the level be, that we have a tendency to reciprocate the evil. And if we don't reciprocate any kind of physical evil, we do have a tendency to uh, use our tongue and slander those who persecute us. But Peter would say, do not do that, but instead do good to them. Pursue peace with them. Uh, That's in the context earlier in verse 10 and 11. We also have David's example. Instead of reciprocating evil, he says, call upon the Lord and put your trust in in him. Uh, I think that's an ultimate demonstration of trust is when things are the worst they can be. Um, And instead of lashing out, you, you, you trust in the Lord. David says, Lord, I want you to be the one that vindicates me. David was depending on him. And then David says, it was, I was waiting on his loving kindness in the midst of all this. And David says, I want to just trust you to deal with them. So as our culture 
continues to, I believe, is creating this scenario where we have uh, unjustified assaults on us. How do we do what David did? How do we do what Peter is uh, exhorting us to do in a good conscience um, without being ungodly? I, I think the answer really is just, you know, one of your typical Sunday school answers is that you have to know God's word and you have to view things through Scripture. Uh, a couple examples come to mind as I've thought about this. Uh, when the whole COVID uh, thing hit, and then, then government intrusion began to happen upon the church, uh, really good theologians were uh, diving into the Scriptures to provide biblical answers. Nothing quite like it had happened before, and, uh, and it created some, some division in the church. But when the government imposed on the affairs of the church by demanding that we close our doors, that we run our services a certain way, what was happening is the government was actually usurping the authority of Christ over his church. And then what we found was that many churches yielded that authority to the government. But other churches said, well, hold on a second. After observing the scriptures more closely, uh, they, they said this is a violation of God's ordination for government. Uh, they're violating the jurisdiction that God has provided for them. Uh, they're not just overstepping and overreaching. It's a complete violation. They are disobeying God, according to Romans 13. And furthermore, the scriptures teach that Christ is Lord of the church, and he is the one that rules her affairs. So what the church does is for him to decide and not the government. So these churches refuse to comply, not to disobey government, but to obey Christ. And so when some were harassed by the government and others were fined by the government, they stood their ground and they did it with a clear conscience. And they accepted the consequences for noncompliance. And as Peter says, and as Jesus says, they should find uh, an occasion for rejoicing in all of this. And uh, that also reminds me of uh, Don McClure's son, uh, Mike McClure. It's Mike McClure, right? Yeah. He is the Calvary Chapel pastor in the Silicon Valley, and uh, they are facing uh, astronomical fines right now because they have um, uh, chosen, uh, according to their convictions, to not comply with um, uh, the regulations that have been set upon them. Uh, they are at risk now of losing the church building. Um, uh, he's at risk of losing his home. And so anyway, we want to be praying uh, for that church and that they would just hold strong, take courage. Another uh, example, or couching a whole bunch together, as we've seen, I think, accelerate uh, in the last uh, probably five or six years, more so than ever in Western culture, is the way that culture is both redefining and prescribing morality. And when a Christian challenges their, their moral paradigms or the kind of the status quo, those in the culture uh, are maligning more than ever viciously. And now, of course, the word is uh, they're canceling people. Uh, they're persecuting them. Now, this is going to happen whenever a Christian defends the biblical definitions for marriage, for example, uh, any kind of relationship, sex, sexuality, uh, gender, abortion, uh, euthanasia, uh, stewardship of the earth, 
If you challenge any of these things, you're going to get it. But as Peter says, don't think it's strange. And I think that Peter would also tell us that uh, don't back down, but but stand your ground. Uh, Peter says, with respect, give a biblical answer in humility. Now, I think a lot of people in the church are giving answers, but I don't think they are well-informed answers, some of them unbiblical answers, and too often it's not, uh, it's not with respect and it's not, it's not a humble defense. So I think we should stand our ground and we should do it righteously. Also, I have noticed that as Christians continue to take it and take it and take it, whether it be from a, an ungodly family member or from uh, peers in the culture, co-workers or whatever, they, after taking the beating, they begin to just feel the weight of it. And I would encourage you to just never be ashamed of what God has said and, and do not be ashamed when they say evil things about you uh, or they do evil things to you. I would also encourage you to never play by their rules, uh, never reciprocate what they do. Uh, they don't play fair. Uh, as I've uh, been in, in engaging and then observing various engagements, um, ungodly people, uh, they take things out of context very intentionally. Uh, they're trying to hurt your cause no matter what. They don't want to do it fairly. Um, don't play by those rules. Uh, declare what is right in a righteous way. As Peter says, rejoice and pray for them, even as Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I believe, uh, David believed, you will be rewarded. And um, unless they repent, they're going to be judged. Honor God and his word. And I believe that he will uphold your steps in his path if you are on his path. I believe that more and ever Christians need to be biblically literate, that they need to be able to communicate biblical truth intelligently, humbly, and winsomely. I think now is the time to study and to prepare your answer uh, before the persecution comes your way. And now more than ever, uh, we in the West should be expecting persecution. So study, prepare, pray, Embrace yourself and stand as a Christian. That, I think, is the lesson that we learn from David and uh, from the instruction from Peter. And that's what I have for you tonight. Um, before we uh, check out here, uh, if you uh, have COVID, if you're sick uh, and you need some assistance, um, please let us know here at the church. Please email us, call the office. Uh, we would love to serve you and we want to be praying for you. So. Uh, all right, let's pray, and uh, I'll let you back get back to your evening. Well, Lord, I, um, I, I still feel like I'm a young guy, um, and some people might say, well, I don't have enough experience uh, to provide input when it comes to um, the, the things that are coming uh, in the culture. And I know that people have been warning about this for a very, very long time. I've read their works. Um, I've read plenty of history, but Lord, when we sit back and we begin to quantify the increase, the exponential increase of immorality and its, its assault on the truth and those who stand on the truth, Lord, it's accelerating. And Lord, I'm afraid that if the church is not getting itself grounded in your word and trusting its authority, I'm afraid that many sheep are going to scatter. So Lord, I pray for Calvary Chapel 
that you would give us deep conviction, Lord, about the truth, about the gospel, about the morality that you've revealed in your word. And Lord, you would give us strength and courage to speak truth in humility and respect, but Lord, with authority and power that we would be not hiding out, but we would be aggressive, Lord. We would be assertive in preaching the truth so that we can win people, bring people to you. And Lord, as I think about my kids, the time is coming when they're going to see me um, where I'm going to have to make decisions. And I want to leave an example to them of a father who was fearless in the faith, who would not back down, who would suffer for righteousness, who would do what's right even when it hurts. So Lord, for all of us parents, Lord, instill in us now, prepare us now for what's coming as it just gets worse and worse. Help us to teach our kids to do it with courage, with grace. Lord, that we might glorify you in what's this mess. So Lord, I, I don't have any fear of what's on the horizon. And I just pray that your church would understand that you've ordained it, that you've given us all that we need to be prepared for it. And Lord, that in the midst of it, because of your grace, we can rejoice in it. So help us, Father. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you. Have a good night.